Open your Bibles now to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 12. The book is entitled The Acts of the Apostles, and it is that, but it's more than just that. It is the acts of the risen Christ through the ministry of the Holy Spirit into the heart of the leadership of the church. And so what we have recorded for us in the book of Acts is the first century's growth, expansion, and development of the church. But it's not a straight line. There's mystery in it, and there are all kind of things happening. And if you are a student of history, you know that even in just secular history, there is mystery. But in particular, in uh, the Bible, the mystery is more pronounced as God works out as his will. Hear now the word of the Lord as we look at chapter 12, and we're going to read the entire chapter. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, that is Peter, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly! And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street And immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. 
But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain or attendant, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of the Lord, or the word of God, increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. This is God's word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword and is able to be a critic of the thoughts and intents and motivations of our hearts. And we pray that your word would do your work today, that it would work powerfully among us. And we pray that because of what we've heard today, we will be changed by degree unto degree through the Spirit and the Word to become like our Lord Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. Now Luke has been recording for us in his book one marvelous conversion after another. There were 3,000 people converted to Christianity on the day of Pentecost. The Samaritans, the Ethiopian eunuch Saul of Tarsus, the Gentile centurion Cornelius, and the pagans even in Antioch. In concentric circles, the word of God was spreading throughout the ends of the earth. But first, uh, the church is about to take a great leap forward that we call the first missionary journey that Saul and Barnabas will go on in chapter 13. But first, Luke has to chronicle a serious setback in the death of James and the imprisonment of Peter both of whom were apostles and leaders of the Jerusalem church. So James is the first apostle martyred in this growing, fledgling church. Stephen had been martyred prior to that, but he was not an apostle, as we know. So, Peter's in prison. Herod Agrippa I was the tyrant responsible for this double assault upon the work of God. 
At that time, it must have seemed like a very grave crisis to the church in Jerusalem. It must have seemed like God had abandoned them, as it were. And although Luke is able to go on and chronicle the rescue of Peter by the intervention of God. Thus, the destructive power of a tyrant like Herod is contrasted with God's power in the rescue of Peter. Thus, uh, indeed, throughout church history, the pendulum has swung often between the expansion of the church and the opposition of the culture, between the growth and shrinkage, advance and retreat, and although with the assurance that even the powers of death and hell will never prevail against Christ's church since it is built securely on the rock that is the person and work of the Lord Jesus. Herod Agrippa was the grandson of Herod the Great. Many of you may not know, remember Herod the Great. He was the one that issued the infanticide of male children at the birth of Christ, why Jesus had to flee to Egypt. And so he shared some of his grandfather's uh, characteristics. And after the emperors Caligula and Claudius had given him portions of Palestine's territory, his kingdom was as extensive as his grandfather's. But one of the things I wanted to point out before we move into the actual three points of the message, where we'll look at the plot of Herod, his defeat, and his gruesome death, I wanted us to think a little bit about persecution and the providence of God. Why does God permit persecution to his church? Isn't he for the church? Isn't he about growing the church? Why does he allow persecution to occur? And the best answer is it creates the spreading of the gospel and it generates many, many more believers. But God's ways are not our ways. One thing that we tend to do when we think about God at all is to project our natural expectations about who God is onto Him instead of fighting to let the Bible surprise us into what God Himself says about Himself. And there's no point in the Bible where that's made more clearly than Isaiah 55. And if you want to hold your thumb in Acts 12 and turn to Isaiah 55, you might want to do that for just a second. There's nothing that troubles our consciences more than when we think that God is like ourselves, that he is an extension of the better angels of our nature. But God is not like us. God is infinite. We are finite. God is holy. We are sinful. God is transcendent. Uh, he, there's something about him that is other. And when we look at his hand of providence moving in the world, sometimes we have a difficulty reconciling that with our image of who God is. When life takes a difficult turn, Christians often remind others with sort of a shrug of their shoulders, well, you know what the Bible says, uh, his ways are not our ways communicating the mysteries of divine providence by which he orchestrates events in ways that surprise us. The mysterious depth of divine providence is, of course, a legitimate biblical truth. But the passage in which we find the actual quotation, his ways are not our ways, 
comes from Isaiah chapter 55. And in context, it means something quite different than we usually think. It is a statement not of the surprise of God's mysterious providence, but of the surprise of God's compassionate heart. One thing that I want you to be able to do with me is to get past what we see of God's reign and rule over the world and get to God's heart. Not the what of what he's doing, but the why of what he's doing. And so, what we have in Isaiah 55 Verses 7 and following is a statement not of the surprise of God's mysterious providence, but of the surprise of his compassionate heart. The passage goes like this. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon for my thoughts are not your thoughts, and my, neither are my ways your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The first part of this passage tells us, in so many words, what to do. We're to seek, we're to call upon, we're to forsake, uh, we're to return to the Lord. The second part tells us why we are to do it. And the transition comes toward the end of verse 7, which concludes, for he will abundantly pardon. But notice the line of reasoning here that Isaiah the prophet uses. God calls us to seek him, to call on him, and invites even the wicked to return to the Lord. What will happen when we do that? This text says God will have compassion on us and that he will abundantly pardon. This is a profound comfort for us when we find ourselves time and again wandering away from the Father, looking for rest anywhere but in his embrace and instruction. Returning to God in fresh brokenness and contrition, however ashamed and disgusted with ourselves we may be, he will not tepidly pardon, he will abundantly pardon. He does not merely accept us, he sweeps us up into his arms again. But notice what the text then does. Verse 8 and 9 takes us deeper into this compassion and abundant pardon. Verse 7 tells us what God does, verses 8 and 9 tell us who he is, or to put it differently, God knows that even when we hear of his compassionate pardon, we latch on to that promise with a diminished view of the heart from which that compassionate pardon flows. That's why the Lord continues with, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts and your thoughts. What is God saying? He is telling us that we cannot view his expressions of mercy with just our natural eyes. Our very view of God must change. Let's say you're a seven-year-old boy, and you have a birthday, 
and your father gives you a gift. Your father loves you, and he gives you a wonderful gift, and immediately you run upstairs, reach for your piggy bank, and try to pay your dad back. How painful that must be to the father's heart. The child needs to change his very view of who his father is and what his father delights to do. The natural flow of the fallen human heart is toward reciprocity, that is paying back. Tit-for-tat payback, equanimity, balancing the scales. We are far more intractably lawish than we realize. And there's something healthy and glorious buried in that impulse. We are made in God's image. We desire order and fairness rather than chaos. But that impulse, like every, every part of us, has been diseased by the ruinous fall into sin. Our capacity to apprehend the heart of God has gone, down, gone into meltdown and we are left with an impoverished view uh, about how God feels about his people. An impoverished view that once more due to sin thinks it is in fact expansive and accurate view of who he is. But God tells us in plain terms how tiny our natural views of his heart are. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And not because we're just a few degrees off. No, as high as the heavens are above the earth. That is a Hebraic way of expressing spatial infinitude. So are my ways higher, infinitely higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. But in verse 8, God says his ways and ours are different. But in verse 9, he gets a little more specific and says this. He says in verse 9 how, namely, his thoughts, and the Hebrew word here doesn't mean passing mental reflection, but rather his plans, his devices, his intentions, his purposes are higher, grander, and enveloped in a compassion for which we fallen sinners have no natural category. And so what I'm trying to drive home to you is when we look at persecution in the Bible and we see it in life and wonder what God's heart toward us is, we may be tempted to think we are being taken out because we are somehow less than. Uh, our lethargic apprehensions of the uproarious joy of divine pardoning lower the ceiling on whom we perceive God to be, but they do not limit God, who in fact is infinitely compassionate, infinitely ready to forgive. And it, must, uh, it ought to be ascribed exclusively to our unbelief if we do not obtain pardon for him. This is the last I'll say of this. God's heart of compassion confounds our intuitive predilections about how he loves to respond his people, to his people if they would but dump in his lap the ruin and wreckage of their lives. The most natural thing for a human being to do when they look at themselves and see how far short we fall of God's standard is to run away from him, is to anticipate that judgment is coming, to be full, filled with anxiety and fear that God is after us. But in reality, the scripture put, points to the compassionate heart of God, who is filled with an abundance of mercy, willing to pardon us. And so with that said, 
The early church needed a severe dose of that compassion when they looked at what Herod had done. So let's jump into, first of all, his plot. Luke has been drawing to a close his description of the second phase of the gospel's expansion into Judea and Samaria. And so he does that by bringing up uh, what's happening in Jerusalem. Stephen's death had scattered the uh, message out of uh, Jerusalem, away from Jerusalem. And, and uh, we know that King Herod, the persecutor, finds his plot against the church thwarted and his own life forfeited for his blasphemous arrogance. So let's look at these three things quickly. First, King Herod moves against the apostles. Herod the king was Herod Agrippa I, grandson of Herod the Great, and a nephew of Herod Antipas, to whom Pilate had sent Jesus for trial. Through his friendship, now when he was a four-year-old boy, he was imported out of Jerusalem, sent to live in Rome, in the household of Caligula, also known as Gaius, and then with Claudius. And uh, he had great friendship with both. And Agrippa acquired the title king. Of course, underneath Rome, he was a Jew. And uh, he, he, as a matter of fact, leaned toward Pharisaism. I didn't know that, but through study I found that he did. And yet his area had expanded to where he had quite a kingdom going for himself. But the people he ruled over, the Jews, hated him. Uh, they did not love him, did not respect him. And so one of the ways he felt he could get cozy with the Jews was to strike at the leaders of the movement that persisted on proclaiming Jesus as Messiah. And despite the Sanhedrin's condemnation of Jesus and harsh treatment of his apostles. So in a terse sentence, seven words in the original Greek, Luther records the death of James, the first apostle to be martyred. James belonged to Jesus' inner circle. They were together with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. They were often together with Jesus when he performed a miracle. They were together with Jesus as he prayed at Gethsemane. Uh, and so they were uh, with him uh, in all the special times. And Jesus had warned his disciples that men would lay hands on them and persecute them. And between Stephen and James and other believers not, laid, not named here by Luke had laid down their lives for their faith. Herod's execution of James was with the sword, that is Roman style, which meant beheading. And it had its desired result. And the desired result was the Jews were pleased. So he took a step further, seizing Peter intending to try and execute him publicly after the Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread. He was waiting because it was illegal for Jews to carry on a trial and sentence execution during Passover. So until the end of the eight-day feast, Herod placed Peter under extreme heavy security, probably in the fortress Antonia that overlooked the temple grounds. Every night, four squads of four soldiers each, two chained to the prisoner, and the other two standing guard outside the cell door, 
stood three-hour watches to ensure that the escape that had embarrassed the Sanhedrin, where Peter in chapter 5 had gotten out, uh, would not be repeated. Such short watches provided no excuse for any of these soldiers to become drowsy and fall asleep on duty. Meanwhile, an even more powerful force was at work to effect Peter's escape. The church was earnestly praying to God for him. Do not underestimate what God will use prayer to do. Prayer for people who have no power, who are oppressed, who have no resources, who do not have access to the uh, kingdom of man is the most powerful thing we can do. A friend of mine used to say when I would tell him, you know, I, I was so upset about something that I, I said at that very moment, I just went into my room and closed the door and prayed. And he said, has it come to that? Has it come to that we're now on our knees praying? It shouldn't be the exception. It should be the rule. Prayer's not wasted time. Prayer's not just something we do to check off the list. Prayer is the most powerful weapon the church has. And here we see even though their prayer and their faith was extremely weak, God honored their prayer. And so next thing we see is Peter sleepwalking his way to freedom. He said, I, this is what's amazing to me. How could he sleep so soundly and secure in, in, in this time of being under arrest with his life on the line? I, I'm not wired that way. I would have been up all night pacing the floor, trying to pray that God would give me the strength to face whatever I had to. But Peter's sound asleep. And the angel had to strike him in the side to awaken him. And he stood in response to the angel's command, and both chains dropped immediately from his wrist. Neither the chains clattered nor the heavenly light that flooded the cell roused any of the guards. The prisoner himself was so groggy that the angel gave him step-by-step -step dressing instructions. Dress yourself and put your sandals on. Then wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Actually, Luke here is using the language of the first Passover uh, in referring to Moses uh, bringing the people of God out of Egypt on Passover. So Peter drifted as in a dream by the angel's side past the first and second guards to the forbidding iron gate that barred his way to the city and beyond and freedom. But the gate swung open of its own accord. Suddenly Peter finds himself alone in the street. And the angel had vanished and he realized that what he assumed was a vision or a dream was in actuality reality. The Lord had sent his angel and rescued him from the hand of Herod, just as he had sent his angel to rescue Moses from Pharaoh's hand at the first Passover. Uh, Peter headed immediately for the spacious mansion, as it were, of Mary, a regular meeting place for the believers. Mary's son, John, whose other name was Mark, thus known John Mark, would play a future role in this unfolding saga of the book of Acts, accompanying his cousin Barnabas and Saul at the start of their first mission into Cyprus and Asia. 
and becoming the occasion of their later disagreement and departure. Even later, however, Paul would express appreciation for John Mark. Mark's life would illustrate how God perseveres until his grace overcomes our instabilities because he abandoned them. By the way, John Mark wrote the uh, third gospel or second gospel, Matthew, Mark. He wrote Mark under the uh, tutelage of Peter. Now, let's look at the prayers. They were earnest on the one hand, which meant they were relentless and focused, but they were unbelieving on the other hand. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. The church was at prayer for Peter, and when he arrived, he knocks on the gate leading into Mary's courtyard, thus telling us she had a pretty impressive place. By the way, Mary's house was probably where uh, the upper room discourse took place, the uh, first observance of the Lord's Supper, where they were hiding out during Pentecost. Uh, so very significant place. And so the servant, Rhoda, by the way, Rhoda's Hebrew name is Rhoda, her Greek name is Rose. I don't know about you, but I'd go by Rose if I was her. Rhoda sounds too much like a rodent. Nobody here is named Rhoda, are they? Anybody here named Rhoda? I see somebody lifting their hand in the back. Uh, I would go by Rose. I think Rose is prettier. That's just me. So, she's got doorkeeping duties, and she gets so excited. She must have been a believer because she recognized Peter's voice shouting so she was so filled with joy she forgot to unlock and open the gate leaving him in the street as she reported the good news to the saints who were praying inside and they said you are out of your mind little Ro Rhoda and but she remained adamant they speculated that Peter had already been slain and his guarding angel was roaming Jerusalem's streets Apparently, during this time, people believed that you had a guardian angel who could look like you and appear to be you uh, during this time. And you want to know what I think of that? I don't have the foggiest idea. I do know this. Everywhere I go, I meet people who come up to me and call me another name. And I say to them, no, that's not who I am. I'm Tim Posey. Well, you look just like. And it goes on and on. It happened to me the other day in the gym. A guy comes up to me and he goes, Hey, Mark. <laughs> and I looked at him and I said, uh, Sorry, I'm not Mark. He said, Well, I'm Ben. He said, You look exactly like the football coach over at this place. I said, Not him. Not even close. But no, I, I just threw that in for a little spice. I, I don't know. I don't really, I do know that angels are real. I do know that they, are, they minister to us. I do know that God uses them to execute both good things and judgment, blessing and judgment. But that's what they thought was going on because they could not in their own heart believe that God had actually rescued Peter from this situation. This is very humbling and even humorous. The humanity and unbelief of these early Christians shows that the welfare of the church always rests on God's faithfulness and never on our feeble faith. Have you ever been surprised when God answered a prayer? Have you ever been praying for something that you thought, this isn't going to happen. I mean, this is one in a million. 
especially if it's something you want and you pray and God answers it and you go like, what? That's exactly what happened here. They've been pouring out their souls and God had miraculously answered their prayer. And so pa Peter passes through the prison's open doors like a sleepwalker, only realizing that his deliverance was no dream, and he's in the street outside, then Rhoda was so thrilled, she forgot to let him in to her mistress's home. When she reported to the praying Christians that Peter was standing outside, they were prepared to entertain any theory except the truth that God had answered their prayers that the Lord would flex his arm to serve such frail and foolish folk is a tribute to his grace alone. Every answer to prayer I've ever had was a tribute to God's grace alone. What an encouragement to pray, though. What about a, an encouragement to pray big prayers because we have a big God? As Peter has been singled out by name to receive the news of Jesus' resurrection, so now James and the brothers must be told of Peter's miraculous release from prison and death. This James, mentioned now, is the brother of Jesus. The other was the brother of John. The James who was beheaded was the brother of John. You remember him, sons of thunder. And their mother approached Jesus about granting to her sons the right to sit at his right hand, places of authority in his kingdom. And Jesus said, what? They'll have to drink of the cup I drink of, which is what? Persecution and death. James is done. He's done. He's dead. The second James is the literal half-brother of Jesus who became uh, the pillar of the Jerusalem church. And we see him again, both in the book of Galatians and in Acts chapter 15, we will meet up with James again. He was the one that led the church, the apostolic council that secured the Gentiles' place in the church apart from circumcision. But in this passage, God shows how radically his good purposes for his children vary from one person to the next. You remember in John's gospel, John asked the Lord, or Peter asked the Lord what was going to happen to John, and what did the Lord say to him in so many words? That's none of your business. That's none of your business what's going to happen to John. What you need to worry about is what's going to happen to Peter. Well, now we know. Uh, John ultimately was exiled on Patmos. Some say he was boiled in oil. I don't know. Peter himself was ultimately crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to be crucified in the same way. And we think we're persecuted today. I, I beg to differ. Uh, I don't think the persecution we see today rises anywhere near the level of this kind of persecution to literally snuff out the church. Not saying that we aren't moving in that direction, but we are not there yet. In Peter's plan, case, the persecutor's plans were thwarted and he walked into freedom. In the long run, Peter knew that death ultimately awaited him. For Jesus had told him in John chapter 21. And in even the longer run, a glorious resurrection with James and Peter and all who hold faith to the end, to whom Jesus says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. But let's get to now 
God's angel striking Herod. Herod was sort of uh, riding high with uh, all of this stuff until Peter escaped. But he returned to Caesarea Maritima, the seaside city built by his grandfather in honor of Caesar Augustus. It was an amazing seaport. Um, but they couldn't support themselves through the industry of the seaport alone. They had to have food from the farmlands in the interior uh, that lay within Agrippa's domain. And so the Jewish historian Josephus tells us about the sudden death of Agrippa indicates that the appointed day was a festival in honor of Caesar, probably the celebration of the city's founding in March or Caesar's birthday in August. Josephus describes, he's a uh, historian who wrote Antiquities of the Jews, Josephus describes the royal robes worn by Herod as woven completely of silver, which glittered with the rays of the sun, causing the crowds to marvel. This is the first rock concert with, <laughs> with the glitterati that goes along with it and light show. I always hate to go to these. Well, that's a sign. But I hate going to concerts where they depend more on the junk around you than the music. I just want to stand up sometimes and scream, shut up and play the music. I don't want to see all this. <laughs> yeah, that's just me. Let's move on. So anyway, Agrippa is feeling it. He is seeing it. He is feeling it. Uh, Josephus' account agrees with Luke's affirmation that it was while the crowd extolled Herod as no mere man but a god that he accepted that worship and their accolades that he was struck down with an intense terminal illness. It took him five days to die. In commenting, an angel of the Lord struck him down, Luke sort of engages in a wordplay, which is the exact phrase that was used when the angel struck Peter to waken him. For Peter, the blow of God's angel meant life and freedom. For Herod, that blow meant death. Josephus tells us that the symptoms of excruciating abdominal pain, while Luke says Herod was eaten by worms. Uh, it is common at this particular time for people to get worms in their intestinal tract, some of them up to 16 to 18 feet long. That's wonderful to think about, isn't it? The deaths of Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, the Syrian king who defiled the temple and provoked the Maccabean resistance, and Herod the Great were attributed to being consumed by worms. The decomposition that usually occurs in the grave preceded and precipitated the deaths of these tyrants. Isaiah punctured the pretensions of divinity of Babylon's king in his day. So, the end of all who refused to give God glory, seizing the praise that he alone is worthy of, how often do we, in much more subtle ways, usurp the honor that belongs by rights to God himself? 
Rejoice that Jesus, who always glorified the Father, and over whom death's decay had no hold, endured the wrath that we glory thieves deserve. There is a strong and urgent desire in all of our hearts for worship. But the desire has been warped by the fall to no longer want to worship the one who created us and made us for himself, but rather to receive worship ourselves, to be thought of as amazing, to be thought of and regarded, have people think well of us, our reputations are everything to us. Thank God our Savior, who alone was worthy of worship, lived his life, as Dave mentioned earlier, obeying the law and enduring the wrath that we should have gotten for playing God ourselves. Uh, how many times have we done that? It's, it's beyond knowing. But notice, as he closes the chapter, he closes it by telling us that Herod had a miserable end, and yet there was continuing growth of Jesus' word. The organic metaphor of growth appeared earlier in Acts and will reappear in chapter 19 because faith comes by hearing. Luke highlights apostolic preaching and portrays the growth of the church as the fruitful growth of the word. The word is alive. The gospel is powerful. And when the gospel goes forth, it creates what it calls for. It makes not nice people, but new people. Calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light. It makes us new creatures in Christ Jesus with awareness and capacities we've never used before in that way. All of a sudden, we begin to know God in a way we've never known Him before. We begin to desire to know Him, to worship Him, to love Him, for He Himself to be our all in all. And so... Luke prepares us for the next phase of gospel expansion as he tells us that Barnabas and Saul and John Mark go from Jerusalem back to Antioch to get ready for the first missionary journey. God was positioning them to receive his call to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And that is where we are today, taking the gospel across the world and often God uses persecution to do it. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your ways are not our ways and your thoughts are not our thoughts. We thank you that you abundantly part, that you have such an infinitely compassionate heart and it draws us to you. It makes us want to run to you rather than away from you. It makes us want to know you and to be in relationship with you and to feast upon your goodness. Now, Lord, as we continue to worship you in this service, we pray that you will prepare our hearts as we sing together for communion. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.